Welcome back, everybody, to the Wall Street Coach Podcast. I'm very excited today to have Jared Dillian on my podcast. He is the author of a new book called No Worries. The subtitle is How to Live a Stress-Free Financial Life. Uh, most of you that watch my podcast know how many books I've read about our relationship to money. This one is so much better than so many that I've read. <laughs> <laughs> and Jared, I just thank you for being here today to talk to this community of traders and just for writing this book because it's also so jargon free and so straight from the hip that it's it's like talking to a friend at a bar about money. So how did you get that it's so kind of like stripped down to just the most important things we need to know. You would be surprised maybe to hear this, but I wrote about two thirds of this book in two weeks. Wow. I, I literally like, so I was going to grad school at the Savannah College of Art and Design. I was getting a writing degree and um, we had a class where we had to write a book proposal and I did a book proposal in the class for No Worries. And then during winter break, I said, well, maybe I'll just write the book. And I ended up writing about two thirds of the book. So literally like the like most of the book was done in 14 days. Um, uh, and it was just stream of consciousness. And, you know, I, I've done a lot of work on personal finance over the last three or four years. And really like this just covers the high points. Like there's a lot of stuff I could have put in here. Yeah. The book is about 75,000 words. It could have been a lot longer, mm -hmm. but I really just wanted to keep it to the essentials, you know, uh, rather than cluttering it up with a bunch of stuff. I think money is such an emotional topic for people. I think it triggers us way more than politics, uh, sex, like of all the topics, money to me seems to have the most trigger points. So there is this approachability that you're, this, that, that it is short, that it is digestible, that you don't get into too much, uh, the, the depth you get into deep stuff, but enough that the person reading it can walk away, contemplate what you've said, and then take action. That's what that book seems to encourage is for all of us that read it to be able to take action that is doable and not overwhelming. It's it's incredible, really. Thank you. Yeah. Well, really, the goal is to get people to have a healthy relationship with money. And I think most people, about 80% of people, don't have a healthy relationship with money. Um, you know, if you talk to most of the personal finance experts, they they have this mythological person that has an $80,000 truck and uh, they have a 580 credit score and they're overspenders and they can't control their spending and they have a lot of credit card debt. And that person is the problem. That's the bad person. And what they've done is they've created a whole class of people that are just the opposite, that don't spend any money and they're cheap. And the good news for those people is they'll never go bankrupt. But the bad news is, is that it affects their relationship with other people. If you've ever been around somebody who's really cheap, they are just awful to be around. And, and I'm sure you have stories from friends and family and people, you know, like this is how people, this is how kids end up in therapy because yes. they have a parent that is like really cheap. 
So there's two opposite extremes. You have the person that spends too much, the person that spends too little. The goal is to have a healthy relationship with money and be in the middle and really not spend a lot of time thinking about money during the day. Yep. That's that's a big part you discuss is this concept of what is if you are spending all this time trying to be incredibly uh, frugal or incredible focus on how much you have to make, you're still being controlled by money. And one of the quotes from your book is this is not about being financially successful. This is about being financially happy. That is such a powerful quote. Um, And you talked specifically about how we have to really get the big things correct. And the big things are our home, our cars, and our education. So why don't you talk a little bit about that just so people can understand how you let us see how each of those can really make or break us in the in the longevity of our life. Basically, what I say in the book, the goal, the, the point of the book is to eliminate financial stress. Okay. And there's two sources of financial stress. And one of them is debt, which seems kind of obvious. And the other one is risk in, in terms of financial market risk. Um, I'm sure there's going to be a lot of people who read this book who say, wait a minute, what if you're poor and you don't have any money? Isn't that stressful? Not having enough money is a source of stress. And it's actually not. Like, mm-hmm. I know lots of people who don't have a lot of money. They don't have any debt. They don't have any risk. They pay their bills. They have a job. They have everything they want. And yes, they are living paycheck to paycheck, but they're not up at night thinking about how they're going to pay that credit card bill. So even though they don't have a lot of money, they don't have a lot of financial stress. They're perfectly happy. On the other end of that spectrum, you have Elon Musk, who is the richest person in the world, who pledged his Tesla stock as collateral for a loan to buy Twitter. Tesla stock went down 75%. The richest man in the world almost went bankrupt. Elon Musk, the richest man in the world, has financial stress. So it's all about how you structure your life, how you structure your financial affairs. There's lots of rich people that have lots of financial stress. There's lots of poor people that don't, you know, so it's really about how you structure your life. Absolutely. And just to give you guys some background on Jared, he's the editor of the Daily Dirt Nap, a market newsletter for investment pros. He has degrees in math, finance, and writing. And Jared was a trader for Lehman Brothers from 2001 to 2008. He is the author of Street Freak, Money and Madness at Lehman Brothers. And additionally, he is an investment strategist strategist at Malden Economics, and you can find him at jareddillionmoney.com. What was the reason you did decide, even in the midst of that class, that you were going to tackle this topic uh, in no words? What was really like the heart of behind speaking to this issue that you see out there? Well, I started to notice this around 2018. This is when I started to pay attention to the issue. And I had a radio show from 2019 to 2021 that was on personal finance. It was a nationally syndicated show, but it was pretty small. I didn't have a lot of stations, but it was a, it was the type of show where you could call in and, um, you know, people would call in and I, and, and they would tell me their stories. And I started to notice a pattern, you know, mm. 
I started to notice that people were doing things that were causing themselves a lot of financial stress. Um, so really, you know, I would go to this radio station at night from 6 to 8 p.m., and I would be alone there. Nobody else was there. And I was in this room and I'm just talking in a microphone to myself. And, you know, it's funny if you talk for two hours a day into a microphone, it really sort of crystallizes your ideas. Okay. And over the course of those two years is really where I got the ideas for the book. Wow. So the book was just a, a sort of a natural outgrowth of, of that. Yeah, makes total sense. And I think that's, it's beautiful because it feels like the people and their challenges is really what informed you wanting to put these thoughts together to help them have some reflection about where they were coming from and how they're hurting themselves. Yeah. You were, you were very polite before to talk about uh, this cf as a cheap person but because i do have a tendency to curse like a seller we're gonna call it what it is which is a cheap fuck so what you say <laughs> in the book is that there are two types and i want you listeners to identify for yourself whether you are a cf a cheap fuck or a high roller tell us about what those two extremes are and where those come from well where it comes from is you know, your tendency to underspend or overspend usually comes from some emotional event in your life. You know what I mean? Usually comes from some form of trauma. Uh, I'm friends with a guy who came from a wealthy family, lived in Long Island, uh, but his dad had a business and his dad went bankrupt um, and they had to sell all the furniture and, you know, they almost lost the house and it was it was very stressful. And he was probably about 13 or 14 at the time, maybe younger. And that turned him into the biggest CF of all time, like the biggest, you know, it was a significant emotional event for him. Yeah. And I know another person who came from a terrible household, uh, abusive father, and the father would get violent. And his mother, like when he, you know, when he was feeling, when he was feeling down, would take him out and buy him things. So he began to associate spending as a soothing sort of relaxing behavior. And he is one of the biggest spenders that I know. So a lot of, a lot of these tendencies come from really some kind of trauma that we've experienced. You know, no. um, I used to be a CF, not because really of any trauma, but because I grew up in new England, I grew up in Connecticut and that culturally, that part of the country is very, very cheap. Um, and so, you know, I lived in a family where if you got a piece of mail and it had a stamp on it and the cancellation didn't co cover the stamp, you would cut off the stamp and save it, which at the time was like 19 cents. Like these are the sorts of things that we did, you know? My grandma so, used to do that. <laughs> so I, I, I grew book. up as a CF for sure. Yeah. And I actually you know, once, once I had a successful business and I started to make some money, I really had to untrain myself from that behavior yeah. and say that, yes, it is, it's okay to spend money. There's yeah. a lot of people who are CFs, you know, there's, there are CFs who are billionaires who mm -hmm. are terrified of losing everything. Yes. There are billionaires who are terrified of losing everything and it's absurd, but yeah. they are, and it still drives their behavior. 
Yeah, you you have a great part in the book where you speak about that there's nothing wrong with moderate materialism. And as a coach, I see this so often with people having this tendency to make themselves wrong for even, I, I, it's like, I'll, I'll say, I want you to celebrate that. It, it doesn't have to be monetary, but I'll be like, why don't you buy yourself that watch you've been desiring? Why don't you do this vacation? But for some people, it, even if they're in a position financially to, they feel guilty. They feel shamed, like, well, that's, isn't that materialism? But you speak to that, and that's why I love your book. It, like, takes people off the meat hook. So talk about that moderate materialism. And well, you're buying that beautiful uh, jacket with my favorite male designer, Bob Hattos. I was like, I can't believe you like that designer. It's a great <laughs> story about the boots. A lot of the underlying philosophy for personal finance experts these days it's not even really about saving money. It's about a philosophy that consumption is evil, right? And you hear about this, I'm sure you've heard of the fire movement, you know what that is, mm -hmm. right? So a lot of the fire people, it goes beyond saving for retirement. And it's really a philosophy that consumption is evil, that buying things is evil for yep. a whole bunch of reasons. It's waste. You're never going to use it. It's going to end up in the trash. What's the point? Um, yep. You know, why do you buy these things in the first place? They do this whole minimalism thing where you say you don't you don't need these these possessions. You don't need to be controlled by your possessions. So it's a philosophy that consumption is evil, and it's actually not. If you if you go into a store and you see uh, a jacket or something that you like. If you buy it and you wear it, it makes you happy. Yeah. Buying material things makes us happy. It absolutely does. And it's not immoral to deny yourself that pleasure. Yeah. It absolutely yeah. is not. Now, you can take that to an extreme. You can go and you know spend a whole bunch of money. But to buy yourself an occasional material thing that will bring you joy is an absolutely acceptable thing to do. Yeah, I'm looking through my notes because I have a quote from the book specifically about that. And it was just so powerful. You said that extreme solutions are easy to sell. And that is currently what everybody is being choked with, is that there is this extreme uh those who spend too little are like being put up on a pedestal as the heroes, as what we all have to strive for. And it just seems so unhealthy. That's austerity. It's like not reasonable. And that's what you speak about in the book. Yeah, I don't think, you know, if somebody has a problem with spending, the solution is not for them to cut up all their credit cards and live off the grid. Like that's not the solution. The credit cards are not the problem, right? It's the behavior that's the problem. And like I said, the behavior is learned at an early age, usually through some form of trauma or something like that. Yeah. So like, and also, you know, the, the goal of the book is to not think about money, to not think about it at all. And if you have this complex system of putting money in envelopes and cutting up your credit cards and doing all these things to like, you're just thinking about money all the time you know, which is yep. the opposite of what you want. Yep. You're controlled exactly. by it. 
Exactly. Um, and you talked about how austerity is just not reasonable. Uh, nobody got rich by cutting expenses to the bone. Just some great quotes. Uh, and you talk about another perspective that very few people really uh, consider is that if you're not uh, where you want to be financially, consider making more money instead of being crazy about your expenses. Ask your boss for a raise, you say, or get a better paying job or do something that facilitates a side hustle that facilitates that revenue. Again, most people don't even think that way. They just think I have to focus only on my budget. So talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I, I first kind of realized this. I talk about this in the book. Um, you know, I used to be in the Coast Guard and I was lieutenant in the Coast Guard and I was making like $45,000 a year. This was back in like 1999. And, um, you know, we had at the time, uh, I was in grad school. My wife was in grad school. We had just bought a house. So we had a lot of fixed expenses and I didn't spend that much money to begin with. And I was like, you know, if I don't go to Subway, if I don't do this, if I don't do that, I can save a couple thousand bucks a year, but that doesn't really do anything. You know, it doesn't really do anything. So I was like, why don't I get a better paying job? And that's when I started, um, I started working on the trading floor in San Francisco and I got the job at Lehman. And five years later, I was making $850,000 a year. So problem solved, right? So the most elegant solution to the problem of not having enough money is to make more money. Like that's actually, and the thing about that is cutting expenses is not fun. No. It's miserable. No, like cutting so expenses terrible. is miserable, but making more money is actually fun. Like yeah. if you get a second job and you're working two jobs and you're working 16 hours a day, you will be happy. Like you'll be tired, but you'll be happy. It's been a lot of times in my life where I've been working 16 hours a day and I don't have time to live in my head and worry about stuff and think about things like I'm just working and I'm happy. So, yeah, yeah, it's it's funny because uh, many years ago I had a friend uh, halfway underwrite a trip to the U.S. Virgin Islands for me. And it was so spectacular that I promised the island I'd be back on my own dime one year later, first class all the way. And because of that promise I made to myself, I had to go get a better paying job. And I, that's when everything shifted for me because I went from a very different salary almost, you know, in one year to crazy money that I because of finance, I was in a hedge fund. And I, I would never have had the guts to go after that job. But I had this, you know, obscure promise to myself that for me to afford a first class vacation there, I was gonna have to make a lot more money. So what I'm hearing from you, and I'm, you know, thinking back about the truth of it in my own life is go make more money. But we don't give ourselves permission sometimes to do that. That's what it sounds like you're giving. Yeah, people. I mean, people, it's people don't give themselves permission to do that. They us, it usually doesn't occur to them, you know, if yes. they have a job where they're making $60,000 a year, they're like, well, I make what I make. And that's pretty much like, that's like, they don't even, it doesn't even occur to them to do something else. Yep. And also it doesn't occur to the personal finance experts to tell people to do that. Exactly. It's all about, you have this pie and you're going to slice this pie into smaller and smaller pieces. 
like why don't you just go make more pie like why don't Correct. you just go make another pie or three Correct. pies or it's you know. it's so incredibly common sense but yet like as we both know common sense is not that common <laughs> that's what's so shocking about it it's just the whole thing is just it's a startling book i, I love it so much um the other thing that is a little bit of a tangent on the make more money is you talk about making sure to put yourself either in places or in a paradigm shift that opens up opportunities. And I love the story of how you got hit in the, almost got hit by that water bottle and just tell that story because it's so juicy good. Well, I was, uh, I was going to grad school in San Francisco at USF and I wanted to get a, a job on Wall Street and they had a career center where this is kind of before computers. I mean, there were computers, but they had like a, like a three ring binder um, full of people in various industries that were alumni that you could call up and talk to. So I went through the whole binder and I, I found this guy who was an option trader on the P coast. And I called him up and I said, you know, let me come down to the floor. So I went down there and I met with him for about 20 or 30 minutes and he walked me around the floor and I said, um, you want if I just stick around and, you know, just hang out for a little while. So I had this little notebook and I was like writing down the names of every firm that I saw because I was going to go call them all afterwards. So I was writing down all these names and I was standing there and this water bottle like almost hits me in the head, like flying through the air. And it was one of the guys in the pit that was trying to throw it in the trash and he missed. And there was this like stock jockey standing next to me, this little short guy. And he looks at him. He's like, that guy's a fucking Marine. He's going to kill you. And because uh, I had like this short haircut. So then he looks at me and he says, are you looking for a job? And I'm like, yeah, I'm looking for a job. He says, all right, here's where we're going to do. I'm going to take you over to this guy, shake his hand, take his business card and call him and he'll get you an interview. And that's exactly what happened. He took me over to this guy. I got his business card. I called him the next day. The next week I had an interview. I got the job. Right. And that that's, that's how my career on wall street started. But you know, a lot of people hear that story and they're like, well, it was just pure luck. Like, you know, you were standing in the right spot and the water bottle went by and whatever. But the crucial part of that is I wasn't in my apartment, exactly. right? Exactly. Like you can sit in your apartment and wish for a job yeah. and you're not going to get a job. You yeah. actually have to take action. Yeah. So I didn't know what was going to happen when I went down to the trading floor. But just the fact that I was there, I put myself in a position where I was positively exposed to luck, where that's something right. good can happen. That's and that's right. really what a lot of success is about, is about putting yourself in a position where something good can happen, that's you know? Right. So that's as a general rule, if I get an invitation to a conference, I go to the conference. Wow. If I get an invitation to a party, I go to the party because wow. those opportunities happen around other people. That's they don't right. happen when you're by yourself in your apartment. That's right. Absolutely. So, so powerful and so true. Uh, all right. Let's talk a little bit about the concept of capital conviction and courage. You talk about the importance of the three C's. Just speak a little bit about that. Well, you know, the funny thing about the financial crisis is it created a lot of opportunities. Okay. 
uh, in stocks, but not just in stocks, but also in real estate and a lot of other, th other things, there were a lot of assets that were trading at very distressed levels that you could have taken advantage of mm. if you had the cash, if you had the cash. And that's the thing, you know, most people during the financial crisis in 2007, they were fully invested. They had all their money in the stock market. And when, when the stock market went down 57%, like they didn't, they didn't have any cash to take advantage of the opportunities, right? Yep. So yep. that's actually one of the other things I talk about in the book is yes. having cash all the time because yes. the, I talk about the option value of cash, right? Yes. Um, quick story, in 2006 here at Myrtle Beach, they built this thing called Market Common, which is like this uh, mixed use retail residential development Um I think JP Morgan actually financed it and they built it for 120 million in wow. 2010. It sold for 19 million. Okay. So I don't know who bought it, but I think about this since 2010, the population of Myrtle beach has doubled. Okay. There's been a whole bunch of developments that have gone up around there. Like in 2010, there were tumbleweeds. There was nobody there. Now it's always full. People are shopping. People are going to the movies. People are going to restaurants. It was a home run trade. Whoever bought that for 19 million, it was a home run trade. But you had to have the cash. You had to have the capital, the courage, and the conviction to take advantage of that opportunity. So like right now, this is, you know, 2024, Stock markets at all time highs, like nothing is particularly cheap, like real estate is expensive, stocks are expensive, but one day things will be cheap, right? We go through cycles. One day we'll have a cycle, things will get cheap, we'll have a recession, and you have to have the cash, to the, the capital, the courage and conviction to take advantage of it. Yeah. And you talked about how so often we are constantly being told that we have we can't have cash that we shouldn't have cash that we're somehow being perhaps irresponsible if we have cash and that the again you know different powers that be or different uh you know places that want to make some money off of our money advocate this to us and you talked about how important it is for our mental health to simply have cash, you know, in the bank, even if it's not uh, drawing interest because it secures our mental health. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, like everybody should have emergency funds, first of all, right? You should have six months of expenses in the bank at a minimum, preferably 12 months of expenses. But, you know, when the financial crisis happened, I did, I did lose money, I lost, 40-ish percent of my net worth, right? Mm. Uh, mm. I invested poorly. I was uh, not fully invested, but I had some mutual funds. But the bigger issue was my Lehman stock went to zero, right? Mm. So I had a lot of money in Lehman stock and that went to zero. So I took, I, I took a pretty big hit in the financial crisis, but I still like, I had a house where I had like 40% equity, um, my wife had a job. I still had seven figures saved up. Like I was not in a position where I was, you know, I was in danger of going bankrupt or anything like that. Like, you know, there's leverage can kill, like leverage can absolutely kill. And that's one of the things I talked about in the mortgage chapter is that people don't really have an understanding of how much risk there is around buying a house. 
It's yeah. an enormous amount of risk. It's a huge amount of risk. And like the, the way people buy houses is it's so institutionalized and it's so easy that people, they kind of sleepwalk through it and they don't understand how much leverage there is. Yeah. I mean, the housing market is pretty expensive right now. Could housing prices go down 20%? For sure. I'm not saying that's going to happen, but that could absolutely right. happen. And if you bought a house a couple of months ago and it goes down 20%, you're wiped out. Like yeah. your equity is gone, yep. you know? Yep. So, you know, I think it, part of what you're speaking to is just the awareness. That's what the heart of the book feels like to me. You're trying to make us very conscious, very aware of the variables that we're not maybe paying attention to. I thought, I think you said that unless our hands are shaking while we sign on the dotted line for our house, we are not really present to the, the to how risky that is and how we should be so cautious about it. Yep. Yeah. Um, you also talked about, um, there was another part I have to find here that was also fantastic about how often we don't even take a look deeply at our relationship to money and to see how it impacts us, what, what we come from, what our relation, our parents' perhaps relationship to money was. And then you tell us to watch a scene from The Gambler, which I had not seen. Um, oh John my goodness, Goodman. you gotta see that gives an amazing that. talk about money. So I watched his talk and now of course I have to watch the movie. So <laughs> give us the short version of why you felt that was one of the best descriptions of money uh, you've ever heard. Well, it's really about, you know, to use like the Seam Taleb's term, it's really about anti-fragility. You know mm. what I mean? Yes. If you have 2 million in the bank, you own your house free and clear, nothing can, nobody can touch you. Yeah. Like you put yourself in a position of fuck you. That's what he's saying. You put yourself in a position of fuck you. Your, your boss wants you to do something. Fuck you. Get out of here. Like you, like if you have, you know, one of my um, subscribers once said to me, he said the most powerful thing in the world is liquid net worth, wow. liquid net worth, not real estate, but liquid net worth. So if you have, 500,000, a million, 2 million in liquid net worth, whether it's cash or stocks or something else, like you are in a position to fuck you. Like there's, there's, it, it puts you in a position where nobody can take anything away from you. You own your house free and clear. You know, I talk in the book a lot about, you know, most people think it's insanity to pay down your mortgage, yeah. right? You have a mortgage at 3%, 4%, 5%. You're like, Hey, I could take this cash and invest in the stock market and earn 10%. Why wouldn't I do that? Well, there's a lot of reasons not to do that. You know, I can, I paid off the mortgage on a couple of houses and living in a house that you own free and clear puts you in such a state of just pure happiness. Yeah. Like nobody can take it away from you. Yes. Yes. That's what I feel. You know, our audience here is primarily traders. You know, we have full-time, very sophisticated traders that watch us and very new, you know, who work part-time uh, as traders. And I don't know that they pay as much attention as they need to about that internal piece, that stress factor of what they are putting themselves through. And that too is what you constantly emphasize. 
not just focusing on the monetarily, monetarily what is happening for you, but what is your day-to-day relationship to money like? What do you feel about your peace of mind with your financial, you know, every department of your financial net worth. And that's so overlooked. What, why do you think it's so overlooked? Why do you think that's not common sense? Oh, I don't know. There's a lot of bad ideas out there. <laughs> and I think what you said before, it's like it that concept of that's what sells, right? That yeah. Like that you said, extreme solutions are easy to sell. That is just such an incredible statement and i think everybody listening needs to remember that if somebody's telling you they're selling you on extreme solution it's easier to sell what it is to live and that's what i think you're trying to do is help everybody live with less it's also extreme solutions are easy to sell because they're easy to understand yes like this this is my book is the hard way right dave ramsey's program that's the easy way that's the easy way you just you blindly follow these rules yep. and you'll be financially free, right? But it's it's not that simple. It's not that simple. Like there really are no rules, which is what one of the things I talk about. Like there's no rules, there's principles. That's right. right? There's That's principles. Right. Yes. Um, so it's all about balance, and balance is very difficult to achieve. It's not, it's yeah. I, I like if if you if my publisher said to me, I want you to turn this book into a set of like 10 rules for people to follow. Like I couldn't write that book. Like that, that book cannot be written, you know? Yep. It's beautiful. And you call it the middle way. And I just wanted to say, like, I feel like Buddha should be on the cover of this book (laughs) because you're advocating that people come away from those extremes as a CF or as a high roller and start to really come into a healthy relationship to their own financial way of living and not go to these extremes, which I really think today, uh, even those who are quite wealthy, I constantly see them speak about these austerity measures that they take up and all i could think of is they're not letting themselves even enjoy the fruits of their labor yeah yeah i mean money money is meant to be enjoyed you know for sure money is meant to be enjoyed exactly um it's there's there's another guy that wrote a book bill perkins he wrote a book called die with zero Mm-hmm. Um, yes. which is another book that I like. I didn't, I didn't talk, I didn't really talk about um, retirement planning or estate planning or anything like that. But if you die with 30 million in the bank, you made a mistake, right? Mm-hmm. Like you, you screwed up. Totally, totally. <laughs> totally. Jared Dilligan, the author of No Worries, How to Live a Stress-Free Financial Life. Can't recommend it enough. You have to read this book, not once, but twice, because it's going to change your relationship to money. Jared, thank you for being on this podcast. 